Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Greetings, salutations, and yes, it is Friday, and there is a microphone in my face, which means that I'm Bill McBride, here with Andrew Martz, and we're talking about how to be sensible about your dollars. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. That's a great intro. I am uh, I'm excited. That's, that's Let's do one. this. I'm pumped. Let's do it. All right. I, th- I think today's <laughs> episode really combines three themes that I have noticed permeated all of our episodes in some way, shape, or form, those being the way we think about money and how it's usually wrong (laughs) because of fight or flight mode, fear, greed. So basically behavioral finance. Number two would be the way we're told to think about money by what goes between our ears. The articles are more often the headlines that we read, right? Number three is the truth. And the truth is in raw data, right? I know we had lies, damn lies and statistics as one of our premier episodes, but when we get down to it, raw data is where the truth lies, okay? There should be no debate of truth, but we only have to refer back to points one and two to see that once human conditioning's involved, the truth can be unclear or worse yet, misrepresented. So I'm looking at an article, Andrew, uh, as we do, and this headline just stopped me in my tracks. It's all three of those things, okay? Written by Elizabeth O'Brien of Barron's. Here it is. Will social security run out? Question mark. No, but it will hit a breaking point. What it means for you. Now, Andrew, if you are... You, for, you forgot the dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Seriously. They need some, uh, some castle music with this, right? Some, uh, what do they call it? A fugue. They need a fugue to go along with this. So, you know, no, no surprise there, you know, a Barron's article with a, with a headline that's going to make anybody over the age of 50 click on it, right? Because if you're over the age of 50, you're going... Hey, social security, right? That's, that's going to affect me. That's how I'm going to fund part of my, my retirement. But, but before we get into the meeting right. of the article, and I, I really do like the content of this article. I got to say as much of clickbait as it was the headline, I love what Elizabeth says in the article, but I want to address another mm-hmm. subtle nuance that I've noticed with financial articles lately. And it's just might be a little off topic, but it's the format. And I just started noticing this recently. It seems they all have a similar format. Joe Smith of Littletown, USA is having a hard time because of X financial factor, insert inflation, social security, whatever. Then it's all a personal story about Joe for three paragraphs. Then they tackle some facts about the topic. Then they have three guys or ladies like us. And they seem to just ask them for like some witty one-liner that drives home the point that Joe is royally screwed. Right. And sometimes you'll see a helpful nugget in there, but it's rare. But I just wonder, you know, I I, I imagine it's some uh, some journalistic kind of thing where to capture people's attention, you have to have that vignette and that story or that that person that people can attach to. So I guess what my point is, is if that's 
prevailing in all the articles we're reading today about finance, it just lends to our constant profession that, hey, you know, you're, the emotions are leading you. They're leading you with emotions into this discussion of what should be raw data and numbers and truth. Okay. So the article. Well, it, well, it, it, it is funny too, because I know a lot of financial journalists and talk with a lot of people in the media and they, you know, journalists are under incredible, incredible pressure and deadlines. And they have got, they've got to get out articles for, you know, for publishing at certain intervals. And most of the time it's daily and you're exactly right. They're writing these vignettes to invoke some, you know, emotion and they're reaching out to people in the industry like us to have expert, credible authority figure on, on said topic. But that process, right? The behind the curtain scenes is like, Hey, they'll send out this, this question with very little context to a hundred different financial professionals and then financial professionals who want their name in those articles. So you can say I was published in right. Barron's respond with one liners and witty little tactics and things with no context to probably this particular guy's situation that either offers some nugget or some general advice or whatever it may be. Because there's there's real incentive there, right? Like, hey, I'm I'm published in you know, do you see me in Barron? Do you see me in the Wall Street Journal? Which I'm not I'm not knocking financial professionals for doing. They're doing a good thing, um, but the it you're right. It's this like closed loop system that's kind of broken, right? Like you're under this pressure. It's like get something out, get something out, get something. Out. Hey, I can I can quote these three CFPs and they know what they're talking about because they're subject matter experts. Right. And you know, here's some sad story about Mr. Bowen yeah. and you know, his dilemma with social security. Yeah, well, let, let me apologize in advance now, because once we get to the end of this, right? Like, Hey, there's a vignette in the beginning. There's three CFPs. It just got some, you know, some, uh, tagged headlines and all that. And now they're Google searchable or even more whatever. And there's some facts in the middle. This article, one of the reasons I really liked it is because even though I had to read through this guy's problems, Right. Even though I had to listen to these CFPs give these one liners at the end, while there were some interesting facts in the middle that were kind of eye opening. So let's get into it. Okay. So the article, the vignette is quickly Will Bowen doesn't give much thought to retirement. He's 32 years old from Birmingham. He's uh, got a job at the family's coffee and tea roasters, got a wife and kids, and a side career writing crime fiction. Okay. So Will's line here is. He's seen the headlines about the Social Security's 2.8 trillion retirement trust fund becoming depleted by 2034, okay? This, mm -hmm. Andrew, this is, this is what gets me, right? Because it's the paradox of what people want to see. They want to see a clean cut. They think that there's a big vault, right, where Social Security benefits are paid into and paid out of, and that vault's going to be empty in 2034. That... People, I, I know. I mean, it's it's funny when you say it like that, but that's the truth. If you sit back and even us, right. right? Like we're in the business, but when we think about it on a surface level and don't really click and get get into the the macroeconomics of it, we just go, well, yeah, there's a social security fund and it might run out, right? And what day is that going to run out? Like we want to know the simple part, right? So Bowen says the uh, right. the the client of the story. Let's call him Will. All right. So Will says yes. the math doesn't work out. Okay. Right now, all this money is going to pay the baby boomers who are spending it to enjoy their lives. But 
I'm not going to get anything when I retire, right? So I understand, and this is the sentiment of a lot of millennials, right? A lot of the next generation. The article goes on to say- <laughs> any Or anybody who plans on retiring after 2034. Right, but this is another one that gets my goat. <laughs> the article goes on to say nearly half of millennials say, I will not get a dime of the social security benefits I have earned. According to a 2022 poll from the Nationwide Retirement Institute, I don't care who the poll's from. That's not important. The important part of this is it was a poll. What, what kind of value do we put on what people think about how much they're going to get from social security? And by putting it in a barren... You know what else gets your goat? Polls. Well, right. Well, <laughs> look, if they, if they polled former treasurers of the U.S. Treasury or former administrators from the Social Security Department or former macroeconomic professors from whatever university, right? If they did that, right. then, then I'm looking, I'm going, you know, like they know the more intricate part of, hey, there's not just some big room with a bunch of $100 bills in it that they give to people when they retire, right? Like th this is right. a poll... They're asking somebody like Will here from Birmingham that works at the coffee shop, has a wife and kid. They're asking him if he thinks Social Security is going to be there. Of course, half of them are going to say no, right? Because it's, it's just basic pessimism, right? So keep in mind, it's a survey of people speculating, right? So let's get into the facts here, which is one of the parts, I, uh, the, the part I love about this article, okay? The pessimism is understandable, but... Going to zero without congressional action, the trust that partially funds Social Security retirement benefits is projected to empty by 2034, okay? Still, younger workers who expect the pension system developed during the Great Depression to be completely defunct by the time they reach retirement are probably overstating the case. While Social Security's trustees project that the old age and survivor's insurance trust fund will run out of money in 12 years, the program paid out more than it took in for the first time last year. Now that's 2021. That was the first time. It faces insolvency, not bankruptcy. Unless, and this is a big prepositional phrase that people want to forget, unless Congress acts before that date, we got 12 years, unless they do, benefits will be reduced by 23%. So, What's that date again? 2034. If even if Congress doesn't do anything, then the benefits will only be reduced by 23%. Payroll taxes continuing to fund the remaining 77% of scheduled benefits. Okay. That's according to the social security trustees report. Okay. So if no additional moves to raise funds to reduce benefits are taken, that cut would grow to 26% by 2095. Andrew, mm -hmm. your children may see this, right? But it's worth noting that Social Security also has two trust funds, one that pays retirement benefits and a smaller one that pays disability benefits. They're referred to together, but this article focuses on the, the larger one that pays Social Security. So getting back into it, the chances of Congress failing to do something are so remote, right? Why? Well, first of all, most of the Congress people are of age, social security wise, right? Or, or their brothers and sisters are, if they're not taking it themselves, right? Social security is often referred to as the third rail of American politics. I find that 
Yeah. Slightly funny, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Retirees are the most powerful voting block. And of course, no retiree is going to want to see anything happen to their social security, right? Because that's neither social nor secure if that happens, okay? So what are the solutions? Lawmakers could... I mean, there's... Yeah, there's a number of solutions and it, it could be, I mean, it's a simple problem of uh, revenue and expenses, right. right? So on the revenue side, you have taxes. So you could change, there's a cap on how much income gets taxed for FICA and Social Security. You could increase that. Higher income earners could pay more into Social Security, which would probably not sit well with Republicans and many higher income earners. You could change the claiming ages, right? So there's there's talk about claim, uh, delaying claiming ages, right? Raising from like 62 to 65 or 65 to 70. You could change uh, right now, Social Security increases by guaranteed uh, payment benefit of 8% per year you delay after full retirement age, which... You know, full retirement age is dependent on what year you were born, but for most millennials, that's currently 67. So you're talking about three years of, of delayed benefits to ensure longevity in the system for, for the whole, which when you talk about like a social program like Social Security, seems pretty rational. So I agree. I like the the narrative of the news and media scaring millennials, which is, you know, when you when you Google, you know, the future of Social Security or, you know, Social Security benefits for millennials, it's all bad. Like it, it is all scare tactics. It's running out this, that and the other thing, which becomes I think in many ways, a political bargaining chip, right? Like this is a way that Democrats and Republicans will pit each other against each other, right? Like oftentimes Democrats are going to be much more for spending government money, expanding social programs. So they're trying to get, you know, appeal to a younger base by saying, hey, millennials, you're not going to get any of the social security program and put us into office and we're going to fix right. all of this. And and I'm not being political. I'm just saying like this is, this is, what causes a lot of these news narratives when you're you're looking in these periodicals, when you're looking at even what reporters and journalists are, are talking about, right? They're just getting their information from, you know, people like us, but also from politicians. They're doing their own research. They're looking at what statistics say and, you know, lies, damn lies and statistics, right? Like, will benefits run out by 2034, well, depending on how you shape the numbers, okay, yeah, yeah, they 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 could, but no, that we're not talking about you know some imaginary bank account that the, the Social Security Administration has with Wells Fargo going to zero and now not being able to pay out any money right. anymore. Uh, what we're talking about is running bigger deficits in Social Security. The other really interesting thing is that you have this like demographic imbalance, so. You know, baby boomers is, are such a large portion of the population. And for many, many years prior to the millennials, they were the largest generation and largest demographic. And now we know they're all collecting Social Security, which drags on that. Well, Gen X and Gen Y had a much smaller demographic, which means you had less people paying into these, these funds via uh, the tax system. Well, now you've got most millennials, which I forget the exact age ranges, but... 
Uh, mo even the youngest millennials are of working age and are earning income and are paying into this this system. So well, wait, well, I'm sorry, Andrew. It, Let me interrupt it, on that too because there's one more variable there with, I, and and I would imagine I haven't seen the stats on this, but I I would imagine that the number of W two employees. I know everybody that that gets a check is going to pay that social security tax, but this generation that's coming up now, coming out of college right now, is, correct me if I'm wrong, less likely to have a W-2 job than the baby boomers, right? The, the baby boomers, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, I mean, yeah, you talk about like, you think about like the gig economy, you think about the ability for entrepreneurship right. and um, freelance work via, you know, the internet and technology. Right. So, um, so that's, that's not paying likely. as much as their parents did into social security. That's not to fault them. That's not the, mm, uh, no, yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's the numbers, right? Like, but that, but that's not to fault them for doing so. Yeah. But just because you're, just because you're in, just because you don't have a W2 doesn't mean you're, you're not paying into social right, security. Right. But I'm, I'm thinking by and large, the professions that that generation has chosen, the, the newest generation coming up, is going to be less um, textbook social security, let's pay in every penny of my income into social security. Or less subject to the social security tax, that's all, right? Mm, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I haven't seen any, any data. Like Logically, yeah, I, I kind of see where you're going. I just, I just don't know if that's actually true. We'll have to look that up for a future episode. All right. So, yeah. so yeah, so there's a few things we could do here, folks, right? Like the, you know, we could raise the FICA tax, all those stuff that, it, you know, Andrew mentioned as well. Um, but the, the thing is, social security is structurally sound. It's just, if you think of it, think of it like a house, the plumbing is on its last legs and the plumbing needs repairing for the long haul. But it's not, it doesn't mean it has to go away, right? So, you know, we certainly, we need a backup plan. Um, and changes to Social Security are also unlikely to affect people within about 10 years from retirement. So they're, even if they do Sorry. any changes to this or they reduce benefits in the future, um, you're, you're going to be grandfathered in if you're within 10 years of that 66-year part, right? So for people wanting savings targets, though, a 35-year-old earning $100,000, I thought this was a great stat, a 35-year-old earning hundred grand a year would need to save an additional inflation-adjusted $33 a week over the course of his or her career to make up for a 20% lifetime reduction in Social Security benefits. I think that's a great stat to kind of throw at somebody that's, you know, maybe just starting out in their career or in the middle of their career, right? Like, hey, okay, I can withstand a 20% reduction in social security benefits, but I got to make up for it myself. And I think that's what, Andrew, they tried to do with the 401ks back in the 70s. That was part of the process, right? Was, hey, let's get something to have people do this on their own behalf so that they can, A, take more risk with their investments and therefore in the long term uh, benefit more and then and then B to defer the taxes and, and just give them ownership and make them less dependent on this government program. Uh, yeah, I mean as a as an older millennial myself, I think millennials who is what most of the literature who stigmatize social security is is geared and targeted towards. I think millennials are in such a fantastic position, right? Like 
just because of the timing of where we are in, you know, culture and the financial markets. As we've alluded now in this episode, it's unlikely that I'm not going I'm going to get zero benefits, right? Now, I may have to delay benefits an extra year. Uh, maybe there's there's a partial reduction, you know, maybe in 10 or 15 years towards the, you know, latter half of my career, I might have to pay more if, I, if I'm blessed enough to be in a higher income bracket into, into the system. But f- for as long as I've been working, the, the idea has been, hey, Social Security as a component of your retirement income plan has already culturally shifted through, through generations. Because when it, the program was enacted back, you know, post-World War II, the benefits received really could provide for the vast majority of, of living expenses. You're talking about 80, 90, or 100% of your living expenses. Today, the average Social Security benefit is not going to cover the majority of your average American expenses. Now, some, some individuals may be able to live on Social Security benefits. For some individuals, it's not even going to cover 10% of their their retirement living expenses. So there's been this shift for decades now, and you're right, the 401k plan and other defined contribution plans are, are perfect examples of this, where individuals have more responsibility to save for their own financial futures, which give you more control and more freedom in, in how you can achieve those retirement goals. So, let, 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 so I'm sorry, let's go back, Andrew, because we were, we were talking about World War II and the beginnings of Social Security was, was Roosevelt, 1935, right? So it was part of the New Deal. And it was wanted to address the permanent problem of economic security for the elderly by creating a work-related system, right? right? You know, the first one was introduced in Germany in the late 1800s. Well, it's the first government social system that our modern social security program is is designed after. And it had nothing to do with providing retirement income benefits. It had everything to do with tr- trying to incentivize older, slower, less efficient workers to leave the workforce. And I'm not saying old people are, are not useful, but in those days, most you know, labor and, and workforce was manual labor. Uh, and they wanted a way to get, make room for younger employees to come I in. I've heard that. And, and now fast forward, right? It's 2022. What we're seeing is that this program started in 1935 has been very effective. It's helped the elderly in the United States so much. The life expectancy has changed significantly since this was instituted. Okay. That, that sure. I feel, I'm going to say it, I think, or I know, <laughs> I know that's, it's, it's math, right? It's got to be part of the problem, right? If you've got, if you got people retiring at age 62 and taking social security and their life expectancy is 10 years, and then you add another 10 years onto that, but delay those benefits four years, that math doesn't work out, right? Yeah. You're going to have a shortfall unless you do something differently to fund it, right? Going back to the taxes. So so here we are, folks. I, I just think some... I can debunk that myth, by the way. I don't think what, that's life true. Life expectancy? Life expectancy has an yeah. effect on Social Security benefits, of course. Well, but, well, yes, but not in the way that you think. Tell me. <laughs> because pe- people weren't living... It wasn't that people weren't living 
longer back then. So life expectancy has changed so dramatically in the last century, uh, mainly due to the high, high rates of child mortality. So when you look at like what has caused insurance actuarial tables to change and, and things like that, you had such high infant and childhood mortality back in like the 1920s and 30s. Uh, so healthcare advances certainly has helped us live longer. I, you know, better diets and better access to prescription drugs and all these other things. But what it's really helped, it's really saved children who were, you know, in infants who were, who were dying at an exorbitant rate during, during childbirth. That has changed the life expectancy scenario to a much greater degree than like elderly people weren't all dying at 65. And like to see a 70 year old was like a rare no. occurrence. Like people were living into their seventies, eighties and nineties back in 1934 and, you know, 1945 and fifties. So I don't think that that has directly impacted Social Security as much because you had 80 and 90 year olds collecting Social Security during the 50s, 60s and 70s uh, as well. I'm going to agree with both um, of us, right? If you've got a, if you've got a high infant mortality rate, that's less people that are paying into so that less people that are taking distributions and or paying into Social Security. Right. So um, but if you have if infant mortality is is like that would be a wash because they're not paying or taking, right? So like it would it would matter if like they were dying at 50 because they would be paying into it, but then not not pulling as much. So it's like, oh, we've got all this this money for the social security However, fund. But infant mortality, yeah. are, they're not even calculated in the no, equation. No, they would be. That's the thing. If they're, if they're an infant, if they're born, and if they're born, if you have 100 infants that die at one year old and you've got 100 people that mm -hmm. live to be 90, well, your life expectancy rate, which is what the administration is based off of, the life expectancy rate is then 45 years old, right? And fair enough, you got 100 people that are still living the 90, but so it, it mm -hmm. does factor in there in some sense and, and maybe not so much as, as um, maybe more so because of the rate or, or the age at which people can first take social security, right? Because that's what they base a life expectancy. But if a child's born, it's included in those life expectancy numbers, right? Whether they contribute or, or distribute from social security. So, all right, folks. And since we're doing a social security episode, hold on yeah. real quick, um, because I'd re be remiss to say this. If you are approaching your social security distribution decision age, right? If you are retired or re approaching retirement, and as we've already outlined in this episode, it is unlikely that many of these changes or you know the speculation about the future are going to impact you. I'd be remiss to, to, to not say that it almost always is in the benefit of the, the recipient of social security benefits to explore delaying. Now it's not possible for everybody, but I would say nine out of 10 cases, if you have the ability, if you've, if you've done a good job in saving and retirement accounts and really even non-retirement accounts, so taxable brokerage accounts and taxable savings and things of that nature, if you have the ability to delay re retirement benefits until maximum age, age 70, 
it is you know likely and talk to your financial advisor your financial planner that you will extract more dollars from that program over your lifetime which probably wouldn't help the situation we're talking about but it would benefit you <laughs> uh, to explore delaying those options get more bang for your buck over your lifetime extract more dollars in total too many people and i think this this is the fault of the social security administration the way that they communicate how you should take social security benefits right they say full retirement age right is when you uh, oh that means that that's when i'm eligible to get it sure but your maximum benefit age is actually being up is delaying it get get that eight percent automatic you know government guaranteed increase in your benefits delay it until age 70 particularly if you have the the financial means to to be able to do that um Highly, highly, highly recommend anybody listening to this episode who is considering their social security strategy to talk to their financial advisor about how that could be possible. I will tangentially agree with that, right? Definitely, of course, talk to your uh, financial advisor about that. The, the one variable that I always, well, we always ponder is we don't know when we're going to die, Okay. So mm-hmm. I've done the math, as I know you have, Andrew, a million times, where you, you look at a client's age and when they should take Social Security, you just don't have that why part of the algebraic equation of, okay, what day are you going to pass away? Yeah. If you did, you would know exactly when to take your Social Security. And you can do the math with your advisor. or you, I'm sure there's uh, things online where you can do this math, but there's an over-under date. Right. And just like we were talking about life expectancy, you can say, hey, if I live past this age, it's better to take it at 66. If I live under this age, it's better to take it at 70. Right. So you can do that math. But, you know, hopefully you don't know exactly when you're going to pass away. But look into it, folks. Social Security, uh, not as horrific a, uh, a prospect as, as you might believe from reading a lot of these headlines that are out there. So don't listen to the polls of what people think about it. Think for yourself, do the research, look into the social security uh, trust fund and, and keep up on the legislation of what's going to change that in the coming 12 years. So for dollars and sensibilities, please like, comment, tell a friend. I am Bill McBride. Andrew Martz. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.